inerrant and infallible word, Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent forth his spirit, uh, the spirit of his son, into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we pray that you would grant us to this morning behold wonderful things in your word. We ask, Lord, that you would delight us together in the things of God, in the mystery of Christ and of his death, of the adoption that we have received through him, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. In John 3.16, it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whomsoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. The love of God, God so loved the world. That love is on display this Christmas, especially so at Christmas. The love of God is seen as the world rejoices that God sent forth his son. God sent forth his son. We could never exhaust our understanding of the love of God or, or our, our, our continuing grasp and increasing understanding of the love of God. But one particular way in which his love is exercised towards believing persons, believing sinners, is on display in this passage, particularly and explicitly in regard to adoption. This passage concerns the subject of the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ, something all of us are, are, are playing songs at home on the radio and on this, the, D, the CD player. We've perhaps even watched news shows and, and we've been reminded that this is the day of Christmas when Christians celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ. Uh, we understand this. And I, I think, nevertheless, that we don't understand all the implications that, uh, of benefit that flow to us in that reality. One particular benefit that we have received because Christ was born in the flesh, in the womb of the Virgin Mary, is that we are in fact adopted into the family of God. Now maybe that's something that we need to tease out as to what that means this morning. But there there is a relationship which Jesus Christ has brought to effect by his birth and life so we are bound together in Christ in common sonship with God and or to God our Father. He is affected through his birth and life and, and death and resurrection, our redemption, our adoption. We have been given the spirit of Christ. There is a relationship that we have been invited into and that has been established through Christ Jesus such that we are able to cry out to God and say, Abba, Father. The first word, Abba, is an Aramaic familiar term uh, that one would use of father. Uh, and, and father, pater, is, is the Latin term. 
or, or from which we get the Latin term, that's a Greek term for father that follows. John's gospel and Jesus makes use of the word, the name father. It's a unique relationship between the son and the father. It's a unique relationship that we don't hear about in the Old Testament between the son and the father. And yet it explodes in the New Testament. The son referring to God, uh, the God of the disciples, the, the God of the people to whom he is preaching as their father, which is an extraordinary idea. It's a, it's a new covenant privilege that we are brought into through this relationship which Christ enjoys with the Father. There is privilege, there is right, there is intimacy of approach, there is a relationship to God. And this idea of adoption is simply this, that God, being rich in mercy, takes fallen sinners, sinners who are fallen by nature and by active self-willed choice, estranged and cut off and cast out, ruined, prodigal, broken, self-destructive, and he makes them his own children, obligating himself to us for our eternal and continuing care and calling us his own, obligating us to hear and to obey and to respond to his voice. It's not a half measure or partial relationship whereby we are brought into this adoptive relationship where where we are treated differently than the heir, than the the, the native-born son. No, it's, it's not a partial relationship, this adoption. We actually are given the rights of inheritance with the eternal son and through the eternal son. It is in Christ that we being adopted into the family of God, it is through Christ that we uh, indeed are, 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 we inherit the inheritance of Christ. Read Ephesians chapter one and two and see the lavishness of God's provision for us and his care to us and the inheritance that we receive through him. We are not treated lesser than the son For we, through Christ, are rightful heirs, and we are loved with this same intensity. So this morning we ought to explore the deeper legal and declarative and experiential sense of a full and legal, unbreakable relationship which Christ establishes through his incarnation. John 1.11 says this, He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. He gave the right. And so we have this relationship with God. We are established as children of the living God, sons and daughters of the living God, but each, all of us, each equally entitled as heirs to the riches of God in Christ Jesus. Now we would think, how is it possible that God would adopt all the people who come to him in faith, who believe in Jesus. But we know that with God, all things are possible and he can do all his holy will and with ease. But does that make our adoption easy or inexpensive? Well, we'll see that it was not inexpensive, nor is it easy. 
We would ask first this question, though, of the text. Who are those who are adopted into the family of God? Who specifically, according to the text this morning, are those who are adopted into the family of God? Well, those who are under the law. And Well, that clears it up, right? Actually, it leaves us with further questions. Uh, What does it mean to be born under the law? Well, subject to the obligations of the law to obey and uh, to obey all that God has commanded. But additionally, there's a wider contextual understanding of what particularly Paul has in mind. He's, He's writing to the Galatian church. It's a young church, very much like our own, and and the church has received newer folk who have come into the church and who have said, it's wonderful that you believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. But do you know, to truly be a child of God, you need to believe in Christ unto salvation and also to be circumcised and also to obey God in certain ritualistic and purification rites. And if you do all those things, you will be a child of God. And Paul writes to the Galatians, he even at one point says, you you foolish Galatians, having experienced salvation through grace, would you submit yourselves yet again and enslave yourselves to a legal understanding? And he asks them, was it the law? Was it by your works that you were justified? And the rhetorical answer is absolutely not. Justified by grace through faith. The end of the discussion. Justified by grace, God's mercy, His tender mercy towards sinners, through faith, believing in Jesus Christ. To have forgiveness of sins, adoption into the family of God, to be justified before God, our guilt taken away and nailed to the cross, and welcomed into the family of God as children, who have a right as heirs through Jesus Christ? It's extraordinary, I know. It's it's extraordinarily good news. So there are some within the church who who would submit to teachers who have come into the church commanding an adherence to a form of justification that would make them righteous with additional legal obligations. It's very much like we observe in multiple places and churches and even within the mindset of mankind in our present day. Roman Catholic dogma establishes that you, Christ establishes a righteousness for us, makes us righteous, but we must do good works. We must do them until the day that we die. And then one day we'll stand before the judgment seat of God and we'll see whether or not our works will justify This is absolutely not what is in view in Galatians. Christ didn't come to bring us halfway. He didn't come to effect a salvation three quarters of the way with the expectation you and I would fill up the rest. For we are dead in our trespasses and sins, lost in our deplorable condition. But in Christ Jesus, he has gone all the way done all that is necessary for our salvation. And so all we must do is believe in him. I cannot complete this righteousness which God commands. I cannot keep the law perfectly in my sinful self. 
I have loved myself more than I have loved my God. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whomever believes in him will not perish, but will have eternal life. It does not say for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that he could effect a portion of the righteousness necessary to be justified so that whoever believes in him and does good works shall not perish but have eternal life. It does not say that. That whoever believes in him shall not perish. A simple question from the text this morning is, do you believe in Jesus Christ? Do you see your necessity for him? Do you understand your need of him? Let me say it better. Those who are adopted are those who understand that the law condemns us, that we have fallen short of the glory of God, that we have that we have earned the wages of death rather than eternal life. That we cannot perfectly keep all of God's law. That we have not loved the Lord our God with all our soul, with all our mind, with all our strength. That we have not loved our neighbor as ourselves. That we have coveted, that we have been deceptive, that we have gossiped, that we have been self-serving and we have been selfish. We believe in justification by faith here. We we love the Word of God, and the the Word of God teaches justification by faith. Sola, the great solas of the Reformation, sola fide, faith alone, and Christ alone, and grace alone, and, and all to the glory of God alone. Justification by faith and works is something Acts chapter 15 already dealt with. There the early church met and determined whether or not there would be obligations laid out that were necessary for Gentiles to come into the church too. The answer was, we will require nothing beyond that they respect the dietary laws with regard to the eating of blood. And we'd ask them to remember the poor. Not obligatory things, but but gracious things for their brothers and sisters who are in that particular area of a weaker understanding of the Word of God and the freedom we have in Christ. In this way, to be under the laws is, is a negative descriptive. In a sense, if we would submit to a, a single regulatory amalgam with justification, then we must submit to everything that, that mankind can make up by which we, we think, we believe, we understand that what, what God requires of us, and further, we submit to every ordinances, every single one in the pages of Scripture. Every command of God, every command of Christ done perfectly, you must do them. We can't pick, we can't choose, we can't decide, well, I like this regulation. We're going to require that if we're going to be saved. I think that one fits right and correctly and well with the idea of justification by faith. Well, none of it does. If we submit to any regulation beyond salvation by faith in Christ through grace, then we are placing ourselves in a position of submission to a form of slavery to the law. That's why when people come in and they are broken into the church and their lives are a mess and they turn their life to Christ, we don't say, all right, now get yourself better 
And let's fix all of these behaviors about you that we observe in you. Let's get you dressing more so with a tie on Sunday mornings and let's get you into a dress if you're female, if you're a lady and you know, let's get let's clean you up. Well, that's not what the scriptures are about. The scriptures are about turning your life to Christ and that the fundamental need for the human being is that we would turn to Jesus and believe and trust. And that's the issue. Even when people come in with language that's worldly and we don't need to correct that behavior necessarily right off the bat. What they need is Christ. So we accept people where they are and we, 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 we show them Christ and we teach them, we share with them Christ. Justification by faith alone, through Christ alone, according to God's grace. In the same way, we don't require of people that as they come into the church, a, a manipulation, as it were, through the word of God. That, well, you must, you must perform this particular duty. And you must do this if you would be accepted and received into this congregation. As members, we, when people ask to join the church, we ask them, Five fundamental gospel-oriented questions, and that's it. I believe that's the way it ought to be. So, so that's to whom Paul is writing, those who are under the law, and those who would place themselves in a negative sort of way. He's saying those who would place themselves under the law. Well, how is this, brought, uh, this adoption brought into effect? Well, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. How do you redeem and help a particular people group that have a particular characteristic about themselves? Well, you, you come in that particular characteristic. If, 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 if those who are in need of redemption are born under the law, well, it was necessary that our Savior come under the law in order to redeem those who are under the law. Jesus was sent for this purpose. God so loved the world. But he gave his only son. Because of Jesus, we can pray, our Father, who is in heaven. Jesus was born to Mary, a woman. And, 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 and that seems to take prominence in verse 4. Why does, why does it say that? God sent forth his son, born of a woman. Why is that an important thing? Every child is born of a woman. Women have the particular physiology. God has granted that gift, that extraordinary gift of childbearing. It's necessary that it be stated here, though, because in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, God speaking to Adam and Eve says to, to Eve and to Adam, the seed of the serpent will seek to will, will will bruise the heel of the seed of the woman but the seed of the woman will crush the head of the seed of the serpent and so by saying that here in Galatians 4 Paul is saying Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of everything Genesis 3:15 speaks about and so God's promise of destroying the seed of the serpent of redeeming the seed of the woman Paul says born of a woman The word became flesh. God, the Lord, came down from heaven to earth. In a moment, the eternal Son, without limitation, pierced 
as one writer has said, the fullness of time and entered into the timeline of history, becoming a child in the womb of the virgin so that he could save his people from our sins. The infinite entered finitude and he did so by remaining the infinite and eternal God, though now having taken to himself a true body and a reasonable soul. One person, the eternal Son, two natures, God and man, divine and human, infinite and limited in his fleshly humanity. And in that humanity, born of a woman, born under the law, he fulfilled the law's demands. In full submission to the Father, he completed the jot and tittle of the law in all of its complexity and expectation. All that God could ever require of you and of me, Jesus did it. Of all that God could ever expect of us by way of moral behavior, submission to ritualistic ordinances, as well as completion of all that God intends for his created beings, and walking in a way that is pleasing in his sight, Jesus has obeyed and fulfilled all that God commands in the covenant of works in the garden, which Adam and Eve transgressed, Jesus completed it fully so that we could be redeemed. He did not consider equality with God to be grasped. He took humanity into his own, on his own shoulders and removed the curse of the law by fulfilling it perfectly in our place, rendering his life an offering for sin, perfect righteousness, willing sacrifice in order to set prisoners free, in order to remove the curse and redeem us from our sins and to satisfy God's justice. He bore as Isaiah says in chapter 52 and 53, he bore the bruising and grievous punishment of our judge when he upon that cross took our sins upon himself and offered himself as payment. And so it pleased the Father to bruise him. It pleased the Father to destroy him on that cross. And because of that, you can receive that ironic blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. That is because of what Christ did on the cross. You have peace with God through the offering of Christ Jesus. One writer has said, Gregory of Nazianzus actually has said this in third theological oration. He said what he was continued to be. What he was not, he took to himself. In the beginning he was uncaused. For what is the cause of God? But afterward, for a cause, he was born. And that cause was that so you might be saved. He was laid in a manger. He was glorified by angels and proclaimed by a star. And worshipped by the Magi, he was baptized as a man, but he remitted sins as God. He was tempted as man, but he conquered as God. He hungered, but he fed thousands. Yea, he is the bread that gives life, and that is of heaven. He thirsted, but he cried, if any man thirst, let him come to me and drink. He was wearied, but he is the rest of them that are weary and heavy laden. He was heavy with sleep, but he walked lightly over the sea. He prays, but he hears prayer. 
He weeps, but he causes tears to cease. He asks where Lazarus was laid. For he was a man, but he raises Lazarus, for he was God. He is sold and very cheap, but he redeems the world and that at a great price. As he is a sheep, as a sheep, he is led to the slaughter, but he is the shepherd of Israel. And now the whole world also. As a lamb, he is silent, and yet he is the word and is proclaimed by the voice of one crying in the wilderness. He is bruised and wounded, but he heals every disease and every infirmity. He is lifted up and nailed to the tree. But by the tree of life, he restores us. He is given vinegar to drink mingled with gall, but he who turns the water into wine, who is the destroyer of the bitter taste, who is sweetness and altogether to be desired. He lays down his life, but he has power to take it up again. He dies, but he gives, and he is the author of life. And by his death, he destroys death. He is buried, but He rises again. He goes down into hell, but He brings up the souls. He he ascends to heaven and shall come again to judge the living and the dead. That is our mighty Savior. And what was the purpose for which God did this? In addition to other reasons, salvation, forgiveness of sins, reconciliation, fellowship, righteousness, for our adoption, for our adoption. Now, this generation in which we live, there are few fathers in vital connection to their children. Very few fathers take their children to church. Very few fathers live in their own home where they are married to the mother of the children and raising them for the kingdom of God. Many of us have experienced lack of fathers in our lives as we were being raised as small children. Many of us have been bruised and beaten, hurt even, by our fathers. Many of us have perhaps had disappointments and been forsaken by our fathers. Even some of us have experienced the the leaving of our fathers when we were small children. Maybe we didn't even know our fathers here in this body. But adoption, think about it for a moment. What is it? It is defined theologically as it relates to God as an act of the free grace of God in and for his only son, Jesus Christ, whereby all those that are justified are received into the number of his children, have his name placed upon them, the spirit of his son given to them, and are under his fatherly care and dispensations, admitted to all the liberties and privileges of the sons of God, made heirs of all the promises, and fellow heirs with Christ in glory. Now again, we never heard, we don't really hear about God as our Father in the Old Testament. We, there's, there's, there, there are no such statements. Always God is infinite, eternal, awful in His glory and power, just and holy with thoughts that are higher than our thoughts, and ways are beyond our approach, and ways higher than our ways. And in an earth-shaking way, Jesus says in the Gospels, when you pray, pray in this way, our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be thy name. It's an extraordinary invitation. Our Father, who is in heaven. 
Abba Hall Pater is what it says in the Greek. It's an, the first word, Abba, is, is a familiar term. It's, it's Arabic. It's, it's, it's not daddy. It's, it's, I think that's far too familiar. In the same passage, in the same prayer, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be thy name. There is this, this one statement of, of this relationship we have with God as Father, but then in the next two phrases, you are in heaven and your name is holy and hallowed. It seems to me far too familiar to refer to him as daddy in relation to the fact that he is in heaven and he is hallowed and holy and worshipped and glorious. There's a flippancy that we can have, and I think we ought to beware of such flippancy. Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed, reserved, revered, Holy is your name. There is an intimacy of recognition of otherness and transcendence without a flippant familiarity. I've mentioned a moment ago of the relationship some amongst us have had with our fathers, and I'm thankful for the nuclear family in which I was raised with mother and father who taught me about Christ, but some of us did not have that. Let me tell you about John Patton. He's a Scottish Presbyterian missionary to the New Hebrides in the middle 19th century. And he had to leave and he was going to the mission field. And in those days, you went to the mission field and you didn't get easy passage on an airplane back. When you left, you would most likely not come back. And so you're saying goodbye forever until we meet again in the Lord in heaven. And so one afternoon he was leaving and he had to go and his father wanted to walk with him. And he says, as he records in his journal, for the last half mile or so we walked. We walked on together in an almost unbroken silence. My father's tears fell fast when our eyes met each other with looks for which all speech was vain. We halted upon reaching the appointed parting place. He grasped my hand firmly for a minute in silence and then solemnly and affectionately said, God bless you, my son. Your father's God prosper you and keep you from all evil. Unable to say more, his lips kept moving in silent prayer. In tears, we embraced and parted. I ran off as fast as I could and went about to turn a corner in the road where he could lose sight of me. I looked back and saw him still standing, gazing after me, waving my hat in adieu, I was around the corner and out of sight in an instant, but my heart was too full and sore to carry me further. So I darted into the side of the road and wept for a time. And rising up cautiously, I climbed the dike to see if he stood where I left him. And just at that moment, I caught a glimpse of him, climbing the dike and looking out for me. He did not see me, and after he had gazed eagerly in my direction, for a while he got down set his face toward home, and began to return. I watched through blinding tears till his form faded from my gaze, and then hastening on my way, vowed deeply and often by the help of God to live and act so as to never grieve or dishonor such a father. Many of us, we've said, have been disappointed of our earthly fathers. They have have sinned. I'm, I'm thinking collectively of our corporate identity here as a church. 
They have sinned. They have failed. They have harmed. They have hurt. They have wounded. They have broken. They have bruised. Many of us have experienced loss of fathers through divorce or death. This is our temporal experience of fatherhood. But this is not your truest experience of fatherhood if you are a child of God. That is not your truest identity or experience of fatherhood if you are loved by God and if he is your father. There is an everlasting bond of love, of affection, of fellowship, of holy disciplinary care such that we are trained to be holy as He is holy and He is gracious and He is forgiving. And in the course of humanity, He sent forth His Son in order that we might be able to, through Him, cry, Abba, Father. It is through Jesus that you and I, male and female, children or adult, have experienced the trueness, the fullness, the joy of being able to approach God and to say, My Father, who art in heaven, hallowed, holy is your name. It is through Jesus, it is because of Jesus that we can go to him as a father and to make pleadings in his name based upon this relationship. You, you never approach God, the Father, through anything other than our relationship and our identity and unity with Christ Jesus. And therefore we can always refer to him as our Father. And so when we ask of him, we are asking because of Christ and through Christ, but we are appealing as his children. Always. He sees you as nothing less. There is an everlasting bond of affection. And of love. Nothing is more important than this relationship. Nothing is more glorious, and everything that troubles you today is resolved in this one consolation that the eternal God is my Father. That the eternal God who created all things ex nihilo out of nothing is your Father. He has come and sent forth His Son in order to establish a relationship between yourself and Him of adoption, not as a lesser being, but through His one and beloved Son, His only begotten Son. You are not a slave. You are His child. You are not some servile being who will ascend to heaven and be given tasks to do until the end of all days and to serve the name and the glory of God for anything less than the fact that you are a child of the King and you are invited into loving fellowship, loving service, loving obligation through relationship, not economy, through relationship, and in a similar way, He must care for us. He must care for you. He must protect us. He, he can never forsake His accepted responsibilities to us and for us in these things. You are the apple of His eye. You are precious to Him. He cares for you. And He holds you in the palms of His hands. Whatever troubles you today, He is your Father. You are His child. And nothing can separate you from His love. 
Nothing can ever come between you and your Father in heaven. Do you remember Paul's benediction? The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. The love of the Father. I tend to judge God by my circumstances. And so when my circumstances are trying and difficult and I'm lonely and I'm struggling or I'm discouraged, I tend to judge God by that and to say, well, he must not love me. That's a wicked thought. He loves us. And he loves you, I say. Maybe these are the words that you and I need to hear this very day on Christmas Day, a reminder that in the sick world, the sin sick world in which we live, that He loves us. He loves us more profoundly than we could ever understand. He loves us not because of what we can do for Him, but He loves us because of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who He sent forth into this world. He sent His only begotten Son so that He could adopt you as His child and save you from your sins. 1 John 3, 1, Behold, with what, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called the sons of God. For this we have been predestined to be sons and daughters, the children of God, according to Ephesians one five. Once we belonged to another family and our legal status declared that we didn't belong to God's family, but now rather to the mass of humanity, but with sinful Adam and our father and Satan as our master. And Jesus even said that to the Pharisees of his day. But God being rich in mercy has legally translated the purchase of transference and redemption of ourselves from the prior legal relationship into one with himself so that we are now legally sons and daughters of God, bearing his name with all the rights and privileges and advantages of this new relationship, you are now part of the family of God. This should dominate our thoughts. This should, this should be a constant source and stream of thanksgiving to the Lord. This should renew constantly our approach to God and give new life daily to our spiritual disciplines. Are you tired? Are you worn? Are you saying that you're tired of reading the same Bible and praying to the same God? Be renewed in this. You are more, far more. Your standing in Christ is of far greater significance than you have dared to breathe. Our Father will strengthen us. We are not to fear because he is with us. He has chosen us. He will uphold us in his right hand, strengthen, help, chasten us, discipline, correct us, keep us from failing and falling. He will provide for us. He will minister to us. He will sanctify us and one day bring, him to him, bring us to himself. And in the meantime, the Spirit brings us Christ. He comes to dwell within us, take up his residence in our hearts. He abides with us. His pre presence animates and empowers us gives us new life in this relationship. He enlightens our mind with the words and the wisdom and his worth, his outlook on suffering, his renewal, his righteousness, all of Christ. He sanctifies us and he seals us in him. For every Christian, Christ is found in all of us. So be comforted by this fact today as we conclude.
be encouraged by this, this statement from the canons of Dort. But God, who is rich in mercy, according to his unchangeable purpose of election, does not wholly withdraw the Holy Spirit from his own people, even in their melancholy falls. Nor does he suffer them to proceed so far as to lose the grace of adoption and forfeit the state of justification or to commit a sin unto death nor does he permit them to be totally deserted, nor to plunge themselves into everlasting destruction. Some have feared that very thing. You have been adopted into the family of God. It is impossible for you to be forsaken. Impossible. So let us rebuke that tendency in ourselves to hold the difficulty of our circumstances or the temerity of our own heart, or the sinfulness of our own hearts against God with the assumption that he dislikes us, that he will cast us off once he realizes what we truly are. He loves you. You're his child. You belong to him. If you are of the faith today, you're adopted into the family of God. You have a new and legal and full relationship with him through Christ Jesus, because the eternal Son of God became flesh. Let us praise God. Let's pray. Well, Lord God, we praise you for you are a glorious and saving and merciful God who has caused us to be born again to a new and living hope in Jesus Christ. Cause that truth to come home to our hearts. Enable us to believe and to trust Work faith in our hard hearts. Open our eyes to see, to see Jesus Christ. We ask that you would give us a spirit of gratefulness and of assurance that we are children of God. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.